I'd like for you to open your Bibles to uh, Judges once again. And as we mentioned last week, uh, one of the uh, men who really stuck out to me, president, uh, once president of John Hopkins University, Dr. Stephen Muller, who said this about our country, failure to rally around a set of values means that we are turning out highly skilled barbarians. Society as a whole is turning out barbarians because of the discarding of value system that it was built on. To restore its lost value system, America can, you know, would have to return to its faith in God. Now, this is coming from the past president, our former president. There can be no value system where there is no supreme value that transcends man's natural self-centeredness, where one's man's values are esteemed as good as another man's values. We cannot do that. It has to be God's standard. And that's basically what he's saying. And what happens when this occurs is, we talked about it last week, we began, they started out good. Judah started out good. It was a good beginning. But it's not so much how you begin as how you end. How you run the race. And along the way, Little by little, they began to edit God's commands. And we get in, we become, you know, we're, we're stepping on dangerous grounds when we think that we can pick and choose what God says, right? We've got to take it as it is. And, you know, it's not what so-and-so over here says. It's not what tradition that we've been raised on says necessarily although some traditions are great it's what God's word says that's important and yes I know that we uh, sometimes interpret it a little bit different but we do not interpret the main doctrines of God and principles of God differently we cannot do that As Jimmy was talking uh, to me earlier today, talking about salvation, it's not, well, you must do this or you must do that to be saved. There's only one way to be saved. It's simple but yet profound in the sense that God took care of it and we don't understand it all. And we talked about that too. And that is salvation by grace through faith. And then he calls us to a walk with him that can only occur as we allow the grace of God to work in our lives. As we obey his commands, as Judges became a book of disaster. There's hope in it though. And there were those uprisings of leaders that show us that even in our failed with our failed human nature, that there can be victory if we depend upon God. And so we can rejoice in that. But 
even Judas starting out so well ends up editing God's command. I was reading a book, an old book that was written by Bruce Wilkerson. Very interesting. A book of the three chairs. Let's just pretend that there's three chairs up here. One, two, three. Joshua has moved into the promised land in belief, in trusting in the Lord. That's the first chair. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's a committed chair. Then towards the end of Joshua and moving into especially Judges, there are the elders. That's the second chair. And the elders began to compromise a little bit. They began to drift a little bit. And then there's a third chair, and that chair is those who are doing the work, but doing the work without the power of God. It has drifted away to the point where they think that just because they're of the nation Israel, that they are God's people. And by that I mean people who believe in Him by faith. And unfortunately, this is what happens with any church, with any nation, with any believing family. If we're not careful, those three chairs are evident in all of our lives. And this is what we're going to be seeing in Judges. And we need to be very careful. So the first step that we need to watch out for is being totally committed to the Lord, wholly following the Lord, seeing what He wants us to do and following Him in what He would have us to do. Not editing His commandments. Not editing His Word. Just because society says, well, this, this is a, a, a form of lifestyle that should be accepted does not mean that we should accept it as a form of lifestyle that is acceptable. Just because there's laws that are voted on in certain states that okay abortion and okay it up to the time that the child is about to be born doesn't mean that it is still okay and that it's not murdered any longer just because they voted on it. Just because there is transgender and it's accepted by society and many laws does not mean that God intended for life to be that way. And we need to realize this and People, it's not going to be easy now. We have gradually let the three chairs be passed on. And it's not going to, if anybody is sitting in that first chair, or even in the second chair that starts to make a commitment towards being totally sold out to the Lord, it's not going to be easy to get this 
chair of generations turned around. I'm sorry. It's going to take a process because why? This has not happened overnight. And Satan will try and deceive us. And if he cannot deceive us instantly, he will not give up on us. He will gradually deceive us over a period of time. Where we're laughing at things that we shouldn't be laughing at. Doing things that we would never do before. And calling things that we think are wrong old-fashioned. Or it's just your way of thinking. So as we look at this, we see the editing of God's command. Then we look at some later failures in verses 16 through 21. And this was because of partial disobedience. They weren't totally obedient. Obedient. It says in verse 16, and the descendants of uh, Canaanite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is in the south of Arad, and they went and lived with the people. Moses' father-in-law's people, the Canaanites, were nomadic people. They accompanied the Israelites on the wilderness march. They had earlier settled in the vicinity of Jericho. And living in tents meant that they had no need to rebuild the city of Jericho. And so that just went to pot, so to speak. Where they should have possessed and taken over, it just was not. And they remained there for some time. And they kept up with the military successes that were going on with each tribe. And since Judah had conquered Bezek, taken Hebron, occupying the cities of Negev, the Canaanites decided to throw in lot with Judah. This was, what, this was a very wise political move for them. Now they'll be known for being on the side of the tribe who has numerous victories. <coughs> but the problem, the problem that existed was the descendants of Jericho did not share the same convictions as the people of Israel and did not obey the command of the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me, you can find that in Numbers 33. Verses 50 and 50 uh, through 56. Deuteronomy 7. Also in Deuteronomy 9 and Deuteronomy 12. So the Canaanites did not expel the Amorites from the cave and instead they compromised. Partial obedience or partial uh, disobedience. They compromised by moving into the Southland to live among them. And this, of, this kind of compromise basically went unnoticed. And later the victories previously experienced become harder and harder to achieve. Why? Because of the compromise. It went, it went unnoticed. Now on leaving uh, Kiriath-Sephar, the tribes of Judah... 
and Simeon attacked Zaphath, a city located about 20 miles southwest of Hebron. And they are successful and they completely destroy it. It says in Judges 1.17, Then Judah went with Simeon his brother and they struck the Canaanites living in Zaphath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was Hormah. Hormah is derived from a verb meaning to devote to destruction. Once the city had been a pagan devoted city. Paganly devoted to their pagan gods. But now it was at God's command. It was destroyed and, and became devoted to him. And we see some settling for uh, uh, settling for second best in Judges 1, 17 through 36. There was success with Judah and her attacks. In verse 18, Judah took Gaza and, or Gaza and its territory in Ashkelon and its territory in Ekron and its territory. These were cities located in the valley of the coastal plains. Judah takes the chief cities of the Philistines or Philistines. And the reason for success was, it says, now the Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill countries. But they then encounter difficulties. They find themselves unable to drive out the inhabitants of the valley, and the reason being they had iron chariots. In Deuteronomy 7, 17 through 23, it speaks of this. This meant that they were unable to hold these cities. They were forced back into the hill country. Now, I want you to go back and I want you to look. It says, uh, now the Lord was with Judah and they took possession. But then they go to the Southland and they see what the enemy has what they didn't have, the chariots, and what happens? Their perspective changes. They forget about the Lord being with them. Dr. Wood tells us that the uh, Israelites rested in their accomplishments rather than risk and engagement uh, with this kind of wep weaponry. Compromise brought about a weakening to resolve. The Israelites lose their divine perspective. And as a result, they, the lack of faith they have to believe God will take care of them, will give them the victory over those of superior weapons, cause them to run, cause them to compromise. Judah did not have victory because they did not trust God. But they could not drive out the inhabitants, it says in verse 19, of the valley because they had iron chariots. It's kind of like, you remember the Israelites when they came back with the, uh, uh, the spies? They came back to the tribe of Israel and they had spied out uh, the promised land. And only two spies said that they could take it. The others said, what, we're as grasshoppers. Man, they're giants over there. Maybe they saw some of these chariots heard some of these chariots. Judges, we see that uh, uh, the shortfall of faith here among the men of Judah paralyzed them. 
and produce fear and retreat. And God in turn causes action, this disobedience, to allow them to only do what they thought they could do and not what God they chose. He, he allowed them to choose which way it would be, whether they would choose for him or choose to try and think that they'd have to do it on their own. And they chose the latter. Judges next gives us a contrast of Caleb's faithfulness and Judah's faithlessness. In verse 20 it says, And they gave Hebron to Caleb as Moses had promised, and he drove out from them the three sons of Anak. So Caleb believed God's promise where Judah doubted it. They saw the giants, where Caleb saw the giants, but the giants seemed as grasshoppers before God. And so Caleb saw God destroying the enemy, as he had promised. And Judah saw the enemy as bigger and faster and tougher than God's promise. One went by faith while the other one went by sight. How often do we do that as believers? We're afraid of this or we're afraid of that. Why? Because we have acted in our five, with our five senses instead of by faith. We have the episode of tolerance. Here we have the Benjamites in verse 21, trading the challenge of conquest for the comfort of co-residency. As mentioned earlier, they, fa- uh, they failed to dislodge the Jebusites. And the Benjaminites lived in Jerusalem with the Jebusites because of their choice not to drive them out. And the Benjaminites chose to regard these Canaanites as less offensive. They're not that offensive, less dangerous, and, and uh, the threat of their gods less serious than God revealed things to be. Don't we do the same thing? Hey, when we want to compromise... When we make that choice, it's not that bad. It's really not a sin. It's, it's not what you think it is. You know, you've just got to change in your way of thinking. And we compromise. We turn about and we, we see this with the, uh, uh, with the Benjamites. And we see that they saw it as less offensive than God does. But that's the way it is when we compromise, isn't it? They saw it not only less, uh, you know, offensive, but less dangerous. And their threat of their gods less serious than God revealed these things. And we, we carry on life like that all the time. Anything that pulls us away from God. Well, it's not that bad says, but the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Then look in verses 22 through 26. Here's partial success in central Canaan. It says, now the tribes of Judah attacked Bethel and the Lord was with them. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, The spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you are treated well. So he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. He went to the land 
of the Hittites where he built a city and called it Luz, which its name is to this day. Turning from the south to the central Canaan, we first observed the house of Joseph, consisting of two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. And they won significant victory over Bethel, which was about 12 miles north of Jerusalem. And the reason this happened, it says in verse 22, the Lord was with them. In other words, they trusted the Lord for strength. And they saw the Lord was with them. But then in verses 23 through 26, something else happened. The Ephraimites, the house of Joseph, went up against Bethel, and again the victory was attributed to the Lord, although God apparently did not command them to do so uh, what they did. They mounted a surveillance operation, and the spies spotted a man coming out of the city and found him willing to barter his information for his life. And he showed them how to get into the city. And in return, he and his whole family were permitted to escape while the Ephraimites took it upon themselves to commute the execution sentence that God had declared upon all the inhabitants of Bethel. God was with them and would have given them the victory regardless of the means used to achieve that end. He said that he was with them. It was his victory. However, the Ephraimites chose to conquer the city in their own wisdom apart from God and made a binding treaty with this man and his family. Now, the man and his family were indeed displaced, uh, but unlike uh, Rahab in Joshua, they were not integrated within Israel's covenant and their covenant life. Instead, He was permitted to continue his Canaanite practices and built a city and its effect transplant or in effect transplant Bethel. And they transplanted Bethel, Luz, and its culture. Now the compromise solved no problems. It merely deferred a problem until later. And They edited, once again, God's command. And now we have total disobedience, a downward spiral in verses 27 through 36. And we won't read all of these at once, but in verses 27 through 28, we have presented to us the failure of Manasseh. The tribe of Manasseh refused to obey God's command. It says... In verse 27, but Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan and Tanakh or Dor or Ablim or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements. For the Canaanites were determined, and look at that phrase, were determined to live in that land. That meant that five cities and all their supporting and surrounding satellite towns were permitted to remain unhindered. What was the reason? The Canaanites were determined. In other words, that means that the determination of the Canaanites to stay was greater than the determination of the Israelites to obey God. They did not drive them out completely. 
And later, when the Israelites gained military power, they used them for forced labor. And that was for rendering the lives of the Israelites less demanding. And still later, the Israelites would, uh, you know, uh, the Israelites would themselves become forced labor for the Canaanites instead of the Canaanites for them. And Ephraim, they failed to drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. In verse 29, they cohabited with the Israelites in a place that would prove to be a strategic military significance, a north-south-east-west type of uh, crossroads. And then moving north, Zebulun also failed to obey God. In verse 30, they allowed the Canaanites to live in Kitron and dwell among them, using them as forced labor also, instead of driving them out completely. And the failure of Asher did not allow the uh, Canaanites to live among them, but they instead allowed the Israelites to live among them. In other words, they were under their control. They said, well, you can live here. And the failure of Naphtali, in verse 33, again, the Israelites were intruders allowed to live among the Canaanites. It wasn't the reverse thing. Now, you see how it's gradually gotten worse and worse? At first, the Canaanites, the groups, were the intruders. Now the Israelites, through their total disobedience, what? Not just partial, but total disobedience. Now they are the intruders, allowed to live among the Canaanites. And the failure of Dan in verses 36 through 30, uh, 34 through 36, that happened still further north. And the Danites were overwhelmed by the Amorites, and they were so dominated that they were unable, it says, to come down into the plain. Later, the house of Joseph, the Ephraimites, became stronger and annexed part of Danite land, pressing some of the Amorites into forced labor. And the pattern of disobedience to God's command by Israel produces repetitive consequences it gradually gets worse and worse and worse and more and more of it's accepted and their lifestyle is accepted you know today we have more competent apologetic information available to us than ever before but yet seem to be less persuaded than ever before why is that I mean, we have more than any other generation has had. You can go to any bookstore that still exists. They're closing those down. But you can get online. I mean, it's there for the picking. What seems to be our problem? Well, one is we make our moral choices and align our beliefs accordingly. You see, the sins of the culture have become the sins of the church. It's not surprising that through religious and moral compromise, the Israelites became like the people they were supposed to overcome. We, like the Israelites, can and do forget who we are and whose we are.
And we need to remember that. Once we are lulled into moral compromise, we grow to enjoy the lower morality and finally adjust our beliefs accordingly. Isn't that true? Well, what can we do to overcome this condition? Well, number one, we as believers have three, uh, three resources, at least three re resources for growth that we should depend upon. What are they? The Bible, the Holy Spirit who lives in us, and where are you? The church, the people of God. It is to our peril that we ignore any of these three. But we do, don't we? We must learn to stand on the truth without compromise. I mean without compromise. How many of you know of someone who, let's say, has chosen an alternate lifestyle, a homosexual lifestyle, we'll say? How many of you know somebody like that? Okay. How many of you have relatives that have done that? Okay. I had a relative that died of AIDS, unfortunately. Do you know what I see with that, with the people that are closest to those? So often, not always, but so often, I see where they stood firm against it until it became close to them. And then once it became close to them, they began to rely more on their senses than on the absolute standards of truth. And it's difficult, isn't it? Because we don't want to be ugly, do we? We don't want to be mean, but we do want to be uncompromising and to stand God's way, to stand upon His truth. How many of us know of someone that's living in... I mean, I'm not talking about uh, homosexuality, but living in immorality. Or have you known anybody? Somebody within your family? Somebody that's close to you? Have you seen within that family? If it's not, if they're not careful, even when they come back and they have straightened their lives up, that their values change somewhat and it deteriorates a little bit and more is accepted and more is accepted until you're no longer standing on absolutes. You've compromised a little bit. We've got to learn with love, with kindness, with grace, 
to stand our ground. To be true to God's word. With this, we need to learn that our victories are ultimately not from us, but from God. You see, they started relaxing and they started living off, as Wood said, Dr. Wood, their past experiences. And it's so easy to do. And before you know it, if you're living off your past experiences, you began to think about what you did back then, what you were doing back then. Times change, don't they? Church in churches worshiping the Lord same way, but there, we, we live in a different culture today, don't we? We live in a different time. And what we do is we begin to look through a tunnel, and th- looking through that tunnel, we think of what we did. Satan loves to get, and how we accomplish this. And what happened with us and by us. We need to realize that those victories, as well as any victories today, if they're going to occur, they have to occur by God, through God, by His power. And then with doing that, we need to make sure that we, and this should go up with compromise, I get, we don't edit God. We don't do our thing. We don't say it's okay, and we start editing here and there because before we do it, I mean, before we know it, we've edited God out of it. And don't assume that you can put God on pause. And this is so very important. We cannot assume, so many of us think, we can go through what we're doing. Churches think, we can do this. People in church think, we can do this. Don't assume that we can put God on pause and resume our spiritual walk without having regressed. We think, oh, confess my sin, boy, I'm right back where I was. Uh Uh-uh. You've gone through a a period of, of sinning. You've regressed. I'm sorry, but you've regressed. I've regressed. Every one of us have when we do that. We can't think that, oh, well, I'm right there. How many times have I seen people who have come down front and I rejoice in this and I'm all for it, but they confess their sin and they, and they think that they should be right back into that leadership role that they were in at one time. Now, you may disagree with me there, but I'm sorry. There is a regression And there needs to be a time of renewing and growing and restoring. I've seen too many of them just move out the door because they never, ever come to that point where they have, they they think they're at this point and through this confession they think that they can continue on that way and they've forgotten the strong temptation and the difficulty and the journey that they have just gone through and the help that they still need in overcoming that. But that doesn't mean 
that we should wallow in our sin. When we fall, and we fall into sin, if we want that, and this is the number one key, if we want our relationship, not just with one another, our, the number one key is we should be concerned about that person's relationship in the Lord. And we shouldn't continue in sin, wallowing in sin. When, when we fall into sin, when anybody falls in sin, our number one concern should be for getting them back in that relationship with the Lord and right away. But like I said, it doesn't mean they're to jump right back into leadership role. And then after that, be determined in the, by the Spirit of God to stay faithful. Walk in obedience by the grace of God. Staying close to God always. Let's bow our heads and pray.